0: app and use the talk filter when you search.
1: U.S. history and its role in the world today, as well as generational indigenous trauma, cannot be understood without dealing with genocide that the United States committed against indigenous peoples. Within the logic of settler colonialism, genocide was the inherent overall policy of the
2: United States from its founding. That's Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on genocide and settler colonialism. Genocide is the most heinous of crimes, and it connects to settler colonialism. Historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz says... Settler colonialism requires genocidal violence to attain its goal of acquiring land. In North America and elsewhere, this meant the indigenous population was targeted for mass murder. In Germany, there was the Nazi quest for Lebensraum, living space in Eastern Europe. It's interesting to see the parallels. The U.S. General William Sherman said in 1873, we must act with vindictive earnestness against the Sioux, even to their extermination, men, women, and children. Seventy years later, in 1943, Heinrich Himmler, the notorious SS commander, said, I want to mention a very difficult subject with complete candor. I'm talking about the extermination of the Jewish people. To talk about genocide and settler colonialism is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and part Indian mother. A distinguished scholar, she's been active in the international indigenous movement for many years. She's the recipient of the Lannan Cultural Freedom Award. She's the author of a number of books, including An Indigenous People's History of the United States, Winner of the American Book Award. This AR classic was recorded in 2015. She spoke at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. And now, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. United
1: States government policies and actions related to indigenous peoples, though often termed racist or discriminatory, are rarely depicted as what they are, a classic, classic cases of imperialism and a particular form of settler colonialism. Australian anthropologist Patrick Wolfe has written several books. He has another one coming out in a journal. He helped start on settler colonialism, which has really uh, benefited um, the discussions that We didn't exactly have, we called it colonialism in the 70s, but we're looking at national liberation movements in Africa and all, and I think um, we have a, a clear understanding of this type of colonialism now, settler colonialism. And Wolf says, the question of genocide is never far from discussions of settler colonialism. Land is life, or at least land is necessary for life. The history of the United States and I dare say Canada, is a history of settler colonialism. The objective of US authorities was to terminate their existence as peoples, not as random individuals. And this is the very definition of modern genocide. Settler colonialism requires violence or the threat of violence to attain its goals. Which then form the foundations of the United, Nation, uh, United States system. Kind of the United Nations, too. <laughs> In employing the force necessary to accomplish its expansionist goals, a colonizing regime institutionalizes violence. The notion that settler-indigenous conflict is an inevitable product of cultural differences and misunderstandings, or that violence was committed equally by the colonized and the colonizer, blurs the nature of the historical processes. Euro-American colonialism, an aspect of capitalist economic globalization, had from its beginnings a genocidal intent as inscribed in the papal bulls of the 15th century that produced the legalistic foundation for the first law of nations in the form of the doctrine of discovery. It also, doctrine of discovery also mandated um, African slavery in a papal bull of 1455. That was the first one to be able to to, uh, conquer, occupy, and take into slavery Uh, every person that could be caught in West Africa and shipped to the slave auctions in Lisbon. So what constitutes genocide? Historian Gary Clayton Anderson teaches the Native Studies courses at University of Oklahoma, that colonial institution in the the state I come from. He's written a, a recent book called Ethnic Cleansing and the Indian, the whole book, about a 500-page book, is a litany of horrible violations against Native people by the United States government, but its conclusion is that genocide never will never become a widely accepted characterization for what happened in North America because large numbers of Indians survived and because policies of mass murder on a scale similar to events in Central Europe, Cambodia, or Rwanda were never implemented. He also argues that genocide did not occur in the United States primarily because moral restraints prevented it. Another scholar, a professor of chronology and criminal justice, Alex Alvarez, in his recent book, Native American, and the question of genocide. He insists that what he calls cultural genocide did occur, but that it did not, is not included in, he claims it's not included in the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So there are fatal errors in those assessments, and their convoluted attempts to remove genocide is a concept that fits what the United States government carried out both of them admitting to many crimes and abuses. Following the Shoah, or Holocaust, Polish lawyer Raphael Lemkin, who had fled the Nazis ending up in the United States, coined the word genocide. Lemkin argued that the existing laws prohibiting war crimes were not sufficient to deal with targeting of specific groups, which could also occur without war necessarily being uh, like the pogroms of the past that led up to uh, the genocide. He combined the Greek word for race or tribe and the Latin word for killing into the word genocide. He saw genocide as a strategy, not an event. He tirelessly lobbied the, the new United Nations to produce a convention, And the result was the United Nations Convention, presented in 1948 and adopted in 1951. The UN Convention on the Prevention, Prevention, remember, and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. The convention is not retroactive, but is applicable, I think it's applicable in Canada from its signing. But it's only applicable in the United States since 1988, when the U.S. Senate finally ratified it 40 years after its writing. But the Genocide Convention is also an essential tool for historical analysis of the effects of colonialism in any era, and particularly in U.S. history. In the Convention, any one of five acts is considered genocide if, quote, committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic racial or religious group and these include five specifics but any one of them can be genocide can be judged to be genocide so one is obviously killing members of the group but actually in theory the genocide convention could apply even if no one is killed physically uh, because the next one is causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. i don 't know why the Mr. Alvarez didn't see cultural the cultural in that what is already in in this uh, in this treaty. Another is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. In whole or in part. Another is imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And finally, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So that's the exact language of the. It's a very simple uh, treaty. Anyone can go, you know, go read it online. So the following acts are punishment. One act is punishable. Yes, genocide, but there's also conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, attempt to commit genocide, and complicity in genocide. So the term genocide is often incorrectly used, such as in Dr. Anderson and Dr. Alvarez's statements. Uh, Their assessments to describe extreme examples of mass murder, the death of vast numbers of people, just the worst thing that ever happened, as for instance in Cambodia. What took place in Cambodia was horrific, but it does not fall under the terms of the Genocide Convention. This is the misunderstanding, as the convention specifically refers to a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group with individuals within that group targeted by a government or its agents because they are members of that group or by attacking the underpinnings of the group's existence as a group being met with the intent to destroy the group in whole or in part. The Cambodian government under the Khmer Rouge committed war crimes, horrific war crimes, and there are all kinds of treaties on war crimes and also crimes against humanity, but not genocide. It's a very specific, very specific thing. It's not simply an act, worse than anything else. Rather, this specific kind of act, The term ethnic cleansing is a descriptive term created by humanitarian interventionists and NATO to describe what was said to be happening in the 1990s wars among the republics of Yugoslavia. It is a descriptive term, not a term of international humanitarian law, and it is the term favored by Dr. Anderson. He says that's what it should be called, what happened in the United States. Although clearly the Holocaust was the most extreme of all genocides, compressed in a period of time, the bar that was set by the Nazis is not the bar required to be considered genocide. The title of the Genocide Convention is is the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. That means before it even happens, what is leading up to that. Is this extraction, is this making uh, existence uh, unlikely another generation for some peoples? And you can think of a lot of incidents. So it's preemptive. It needs to be preemptive, not just a punishment when it takes place. That's, you know, what happened to the Jews and the gypsies. All these persecutions have been taking place ever since the rise of Christendom. But it led to something so that that should not happen again. And most importantly, genocide certainly does not have to be complete to be considered genocide. That's ridiculous. Uh, Saying there were too many Indians left, 10% of the original population, is really ludicrous. I guess that means you have to follow the logic and say, well, There was really no genocide against Jews, because too many Jews survived. No one would say that. U.S. history and its role in the world today, as well as generational indigenous trauma, cannot be understood without dealing with genocide that the United States committed against indigenous peoples. From the colonial period through the founding of the United States and continuing in the 20th century, this has entailed torture, sexual abuse, massacres, systematic military occupations, removals of indigenous peoples from their ancestral territories, forced removal of Native American children to military-like boarding schools, allotment, and a policy of termination, 1953. Within the logic of settler colonialism, genocide was the inherent overall policy of the United States from its founding, but there are also specific documented policies of genocide on the part of U.S. administrations that can be identified in at least four distinct periods. And I would encourage you, you know, researchers, students, and historians, and legal, legal specialists, Um, to look into into Canada, you know, some of these uh, things, because I think they're probably more glaring in the United States, but that doesn't mean they're not just as justified being under the Genocide Convention. So these four distinct periods that I've identified, uh, it might not be everyone's list, but for sure, we'd have to look at the Jacksonian era of forced removal. Removal of all of the native people east of the mississippi all of whom were farmers and one of the era, one of the sites one of the seven sites of the rise of uh, agricultural civilizations to make way for plantation agriculture worked by slaves that built the us economy another is the california gold rush in northern california which is There are books written, several books written, that call this extermination, uh, a policy of extermination. Sort of like uh, Tasmania, you know, the hunting hunting for Native people to kill them and, and wiping them out. Another is during the Civil War, which rarely gets mentioned, um, the Sand Creek Massacre, the um, removal of the Navajo Nation to a desert place where half the population died of starvation, malnutrition, and exposure. And that was dur- during the Civil War. And then afterwards, uh, the post-Civil War era, led by those generals, those Union generals who were very uh, advanced in um, counterinsurgency, from way back, the Indians, but also count, counter, not not to defend the Confederacy, but is mostly attacking people in their homes and fields in the South. That that the war took place. It, it didn't take place in the North. Well, the Indian Wars and through the Great Plains. So this goes up to the massacre of Wounded Knee in 1890. By the way, that massacre with more than 300 refugees, starving Lakota refugees in the middle of South Dakota winter, were trying to turn themselves in to the Pine Ridge Agency, to the feds, so the people could eat because uh, it was mostly women and children, elderly men left. So they were surrounded by Custer's old cavalry, the 7th Cavalry, and and shot like a, a turkey chute, sh- turkey laying dead in the snow. For that, 20 Congressional Medals of Honor were given out to the soldiers who did this. They've never been retracted. And um, in the military annals, it's not called a massacre. It's called a battle. And in the column, win or loss, it's a win. Then, finally, I think... And most importantly for, you know, for present purposes, for what we might do with this, is um, the 1950s termination period uh, in the United States. Then there's this overlapping period of compulsory boarding schools from the 1870s to the 1960s. They actually started, they were religious ones, in the 1820s. But they were not compulsory until the first Federal Boarding School was set up, the Carlisle Boarding School, founded by U.S. Army Officer Richard Henry Pratt in 1879, became a model for others established by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Pratt said in a speech in 1892, quote, a great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Now that's the exact definition of genocide. Cases of genocide carried out as policy may be found in historical documents as well as oral histories in indigenous communities. An example from 1873 is typical in the U.S. military documents with General William T. Sherman, the um, invader of a famous burning Atlanta, the great um, Union general. And he's now in the West, the head of the whole Army of the West, which is like six of the seven divisions of the U.S. Army after the Civil War moved Uh, out into the west, the northern plains in the southwest. He said in 1873, we must act with vindictive earnestness against the Sioux, even to their extermination, men, women, and children. During an assault, the soldiers cannot pause to distinguish between male and female or even discriminate as to age. And that's very typical. You don't have to. You go through these these telegrams and and documents, and uh, that that is the rhetoric, the orders being uh, given to the soldiers. So the Indian Wars, so called, uh, in U.S. history annals, carried out by settler militias of the. Um, colonies continued during the decade of war of uh, the war of a secession from Britain and after technically ending around 1880 although the wounded knee uh, massacre occurred a decade later whether 1880 or 1890 most of the collective land base that native nations secured through hard fought for treaties made with the United States was actually lost after Native resistance was mostly subdued by 1880. After the end of the wars came allotment in the 1880s, another policy of genocide of Native nations as nations, as peoples, the dissolution of the group. And in Oklahoma, where I came from, it's all allotted, everything was allotted. Um, There was oil there. So it became oil allotments, um, and uh, um, most of the other reservations. By the time of the New Deal, uh, John Collier era, John Collier was uh, um, an advocate of indigenous people's rights. He had worked with people in the Pacific. Um, he, w- he was a, there were a lot of, of lefties in uh, Roosevelt's. Uh, I think under that saying of keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer, I think it was a little manipulation of many of them that we should think about. So what he designed and implemented, and he certainly did consult with some Native peoples, uh, particularly Taos Pueblo, of um, what what could be done to reverse the situation of disappearance. Because literally... Native people were going to disappear if things continued with such impoverishment, isolation, and lack of any kind of a secure land base. So the end result was the Indian Reorganization Act, which immediately ended allotment, but it didn't restore the lands that were allotted. But at that time, non-Indians, outnumbered Indians on reservations three to one, and land restitution or compensation was not mandated. It did uh, mandate the government should take uh, affirmative action to purchase any land, private land, that, uh, in, in that former territory to restore it to the nation. But that's still the law, uh, but... Um, the federal government does not initiate it, so it's very expensive, and and then it has to get put into trust once it's bought, you know, buying it and then putting it into trust. So it's a very complicated and expensive procedure. And for the majority of uh, Native nations, uh, the Indian Reorganization Act proved harmful and divisive because Many, like Taos, which actually didn't, didn't in the end ratify it, and the Navajo Nation didn't either. Um, the Hopi did, because they were controlled by a, um, a Mormon faction, and they're very traditional, very few people spoke English. So, where there were strong traditional governments, these new governments of people who could speak English, often not even their native language, Uh, taking over the governing. So this is really what the Wounded Knee 1973 was about, uh, was the Indian Reorganization Act and the uh, oppressive tribal government there. I like to quote the late Matthew King, um, an elder traditional historian of the Oglala Sioux, who observed, the Bureau of uh, of Indian Affairs drew up the constitution and bylaws of this organization. Indian Reorganization Act. This was the introduction of home rule. This is a man who who never went to a a school, but he knew what home rule was. The traditional people still hang on to our treaty, the 1868 treaty, for we are a sovereign nation. We have our own government. Home rule or neocolonialism ...proved a short-lived policy, however, for in the early 1950s, the United States developed its termination policy. And that's what they called it, termination, the Termination Act. This legislation that ordered gradual eradication of every land base... ...and even those tribal governments that they had set up under the Indian Reorganization Act. So Pawnee attorney Walter uh, Echohawk writes... In 1881, Indian land holdings in the United States had plummeted to 156 million acres. By 1934, only about 50 million acres remained, an area the size of Idaho and Washington, as a result of the General Allotment Act of 1887. During World War II, the government took a half million more acres for military use. Over 100... um, Native nations relinquished their lands under various acts of Congress during the termination era of the 1950s. Historians and others who deny genocide emphasize population attrition by disease, weakening indigenous people's ability to resist. This is what Gary Anderson took another track and said, Oh, look at them all out there persecuting him because they hate him on that campus, but (laughs) Uh, there's so many Indians here, you know, that, um, but for most historians, they argue that the native peoples were just overpowered by the strength of United States, and isn't that a shame that it wasn't genocide, that it wasn't genocide by plan. They just dropped dead every time a European got near them, you know, it wasn't because they were herded into refugee camps without uh food or water and any kind of medical care or or their traditional medicine but if disease i've always contemplated this because there's a very there were a lot of diseases but how do they happen how's it happening in syrian um uh refugee camps in turkey right now or the syrian refugee camps in um Uh, the Afghan refugee camps in Pakistan, uh, disease spreads like crazy in these, you know, unclean, unhygienic, poor food in those situations. But I say if disease could have done the job, it is not clear why the United States took so much trouble and found it necessary to carry out unrelenting wars against the indigenous communities and nations in order to gain every inch of land they took from them along with the prior period of British colonization, nearly 300 years of eliminationist warfare. In the case of the Jewish Holocaust, no one denies that more Jews died of starvation, overwork, and disease under Nazi incarceration than died in gas ovens, per se, or murdered by other means. Yet the acts of creating maintaining the conditions that led to those deaths clearly constitute genocide. And, of course,
2: genocide was not, not complete. You're listening to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on Genocide and Settler Colonialism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us at one 800 Again, that's one 800 or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
1: Not all of the acts iterated in the Genocide Convention are required to exist to constitute genocide. Any one of them suffices. Uh, I'm sure you can find cases in Canada, but here are some cases, the United States' genocidal policies and um, actions under each of the categories, not just the four I talked about. The first, killing members of the group. The Genocide Convention does not specify that large mem- numbers of people must be killed in order to constitute genocide. Rather, that members of the group are killed because they are members of the group. Assessing a situation in terms of preventing genocide, this kind of, of killing or conditions that, uh, um, uh, let's say, in the, in the black community, I think this is very applicable to police brutality as well as mass incarceration. Second, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, such as starvation the control of food supply and withholding food as punishment or a reward for compliance. For instance, in signing confiscatory treaties, the use of alcohol, uh, barrels of alcohol being brought to treaty negotiations. As military historian John Grenier points out in his first way of war, and I do use that, that's a, uh, an amazing book. He wrote, for the first 200 years, Of our, he says, our military heritage. He's a commander in the US Air Force and has a doctorate in history and teaches at the Air Force College. And I was shocked that, of course, no one in the world has read this book but me. Hopefully, other people. So he he wrote, for the first 200 years of military heritage then, Americans depended on arts of war that contemporary professional soldiers supposedly abhorred, raising and destroying enemy villages and fields, killing enemy women and children, raiding settlements for captives, intimidating and brutalizing enemy noncombatants, and assassinating enemy leaders. These are Indians, the enemy. In the frontier wars between 1607 and 1814, Americans forged two elements, unlimited war and a regular war, into their first way of war. Guineart goes on to argue that not only did this way of war continue throughout the 19th century in wars against indigenous nations, but continued in the 20th century and currently in counterinsurgent wars against peoples in Latin America, the Caribbean, and Pacific, Southeast Asia, Middle and Western Asia, and Africa. Third, deliberately inflic- deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Forced removal of all the indigenous nations east of the Mississippi to Indian Territory during the Jackson administration was clearly a calculated policy intent on destroying these people's ties to their original homelands and knowing exactly what that meant, as well as declaring native people who did not remove to no longer be Muskogee, Sauk, Kickapoo, Choctaw, but destroying the existence of up to half of each nation removed. Mandatory boarding schools comes under the uh, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction in whole or in part. Allotment and termination, all official government policies fall under this category of the crime of genocide. The forced removal and forced incarceration of the Navajo people resulted in the death of half their population and applies. Fourth, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Well, I don't know if you know this. It was pretty well known in the, in the 1970s, uh, but it was famously during the Termination Act. There was another little termination taking place the U.S. government-administered Indian Health Service made the top medical priority the sterilization of indigenous women. In 1974, an independent study by one of the few Native American physicians at the time, Dr. Connie pinkerton Yuri, a Choctaw Cherokee from Oklahoma, found that one in four Native women had been sterilized without her consent. Hinkerton-Yurie's research indicated that the Indian Health Service had, quote, singled out full-blooded Indian women for sterilization procedures. At first denied by the Indian Health Service, two years later, a study by the U.S. General Accounting Office found that four of the 12 Indian Health Service regions sterilized 3,406 Native women without their permission between 1973 and 1976, in a three-year period of time. They also found that 36 women under the age of 21 have been forcibly sterilized during this period, despite a court-ordered moratorium on sterilization of women younger than 21. And I remember watching, finally, the press conference, because this was... Beginning to be, this was the height of red power when this was happening, and people were really protesting this that that it was continuing. And so, the head of the health service, Indian Health Service, came on national TV, and he said, "We're really sorry, but this is the cure for poverty. There too, poverty means too many people." that's what they were using in India at the time, the, you know, the sterilization also in Brazil that to eradicate poverty. So they did stop then, um, but he admitted that it was the number one priority of the Indian Health Service. Their number one health issue was to make sure Native women weren't having so many children. So fifth, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Various government entities, mostly municipalities, counties, and states, routinely removed Native children from their families and put them up for adoption. In the Native resistance movements of the 1960s and 1970s, the demand to stop this practice was, was codified in the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. And that act said that um, no Native child, wherever, in anywhere in the country, in any urban area, anywhere, but identified Native child uh, could be adopted outside their own family or clan or simply their nation. You know, say the mother's dead and uh, there's, there are no relatives, then the nation itself by that time you know there there's certainly um not going to be any adoptions out but the legislation provided no financial resources for native governments to establish infrastructure to retrieve children from the adoption industry in which ghoulishly indian babies were in high demand I, after u.s wars it's uh it really is ghoulish but they had these Operation Baby Lists, you know, the Korean babies and the Vietnamese babies. It's people want to, it's that possession thing, but it's especially strong about um, Indian children. So despite these barriers to enforcement, the worst abuses, the word had gotten around, and they had been curbed for, over, uh, for the, in the following three decades. But on June 25, 2013, the US Supreme Court in a five to four ruling drafted by Justice Samuel Alito used provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act to say that a child widely known as Baby Veronica did not have to live with her biological Cherokee father. The High Court's decision paved the way for Matt and Melanie Copabianca, the adopted parents, to ask the South Carolina courts, where they're from, to have the child returned to them. The court gutted the purpose and intent of the Indian Child Welfare Act, missing the concept behind it, the protection of a cultural resource and treasure that are Native children, not about protect, protecting so-called traditional or nuclear families, the Cherokee father. It's about recognizing the prevalence of extended families and culture. So why does the Genocide Convention matter? Since it's controversial, and since there's so many misinterpretations, why use it? Why not just say ethnic cleansing? Well, it's not just history that predates the 1948 Genocide Convention or the US signing of it in 1988, but the history is important and needs to be widely aired, including public school texts and public service announcements, because um, it's linked to what is the situation right now. The doctrine of discovery is still law, the law of the land in the United States From the 15th century to the 20th century, most of the non-European world was colonized under the doctrine of discovery, one of the first principles of international law that Christian European monarchies promulgated to legitimize investigating, mapping, and claiming lands belonging to peoples outside of Europe. It originated in a papal bull issued in 1455 that Uh, that permitted the Portuguese monarchy to seize West Africa for slave raiding, initiating the Atlantic slave trade. Following Columbus's infamous exploratory voyage in 1492, sponsored by the king and queen of the infant Spanish state, another papal bull had extended similar uh, permission to Spain in the Western Hemisphere. Disputes between the Portuguese and Spanish monarchies led to the papal-initiated Treaty of Tordesillas of 1494, which, besides dividing the globe equally between the two Iberian empires, clarified that only non-Christian lands fell under the doctrine of discovery. This doctrine, on which all European states and Euro-American upon which they relied, originated in this arbitrary and unilateral establishment of the Iberian monarchy's exclusive rights under Christian canon law to take anything they wanted. But it wasn't just monarchies. It can't be said just to be a medieval relic just because it happened in the 15th century. The French Republic, used, after after its uh, revolution, used this legalistic instrument for its 19th and 20th century settler colonialist projects, uh, which continue in the Caribbean and the Pacific, as did the newly independent United States when it continued the colonization of North America begun by the British and continues to hold island colonies in the Caribbean and Pacific as well. In 1792, not long after the founding of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson, who was then Secretary of State before he was president, claimed that the doctrine of discovery developed by European states was international law applicable to the new U.S. government as well. And then in 1823, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a decision in a Cherokee case, uh, Johnson v. McIntosh, and writing for the majority, Chief Justice Marshall held that the doctrine of discovery had been an established principle of European law and English law in effect in Britain's North American colonies and was also the law of the United States. So it's very interesting, you know, the, the conceit is always that the United States broke away as this little scrabble, poor little colonies and uh, made a complete break from Britain, but they kept You know, they kept their international law (laughs) for colonizing. So this court, uh, John Marshall's Supreme Court, defined the exclusive property rights that a European country acquired by dint of discovery. Discovery gave title to the government, this is his language, by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made, against all other European governments. Forget about the people uh, inside it which title might be consummated by possession. So this is like, possession means warfare to take it. So he did say the court, um, and in two other cases, came up with this domestic dependent uh, nations. Um, But Marshall also said, in no instance is uh, our indigenous rights disregarded, but necessarily, to a considerable extent, his language, impaired. The court further held that indigenous rights to complete sovereignty as independent states were necessarily diminished. Indigenous peoples could continue to live on the land at the grace of the government, but the title resided in the discovering power, the United States the decision concluded that Native nations were domestic-dependent nations. So that is um, still the law. Uh, As recently as 2009, I think it was, there was another Supreme Court decision in a uh, Cayuga, uh, Oneida case, uh, land case, in which uh, the Doctrine of Discovery and those decisions from 1820s were used to deny the Oneidas their claim. So the doctrine of discovery is so taken for granted in the settler society. It's also, in effect, here you don't have the legislation that goes along with it, but it's assumed um, in the uh, treatment of, of the property rights. It's rarely ever mentioned in historical or legal texts published in the Americas. United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples, which meets annually for two weeks in New York at the UN. All of those documents are available, archived on the UN, um, United Nations website. But few U.S. citizens are aware of the precarity of the situation of indigenous peoples in the United States. Now, I want to read just a short piece. I have a couple more minutes, and that's how long it will take. I don't know if any of you have ever, ever heard of this place, but I I think it's a good way to, to end, um, and I think it probably applies in Canada too. It's a section of the conclusion called Ghosts and Demons to Hide From, A living symbol of the genocidal history of the United States, as well as a kind of general subconscious knowledge of it, is the Winchester Mystery House. It's a tourist site in the Santa Clara Silicon Valley of Northern California, 50 miles south of San Francisco. It is billed as a ghost house on billboards that start appearing, as far as I know, maybe in Vancouver, but certainly in Seattle. All the way down the coast, and in the south from San Diego, all the way up, big signs. You know, has ghoulish kind of figures and ghosts and on the on the billboards. So, Sarah L. Winchester, the wealthy widow of William Wirt Winchester, built. The Victorian mansion to avoid and elude ghosts. That's precisely why she built the house. Although there is no record of the ghosts ever being found uh, in her home, it could be said that perhaps Mrs. Winchester's project from 1884 to her death in 1922 was a success. She likely was very well aware of the widely publicized ghost dance in 1890, which led to the killing of Sitting Bull and the Wounded Knee Massacre. The dancers believed that the dance would bring back their dead warriors and civilians, all who were shot, died unnaturally by bullets. It makes sense that Mrs. Winchester felt the need to guard herself from the ghosts of those killed by the Winchester repeating rifle, which her late husband's father had invented and produced in 1866, with later models being even more lethal. Mrs. Winchester inherited the fortune accumulated by her husband's family, and she was the only um, surviving, you know, in-law member of the family so it all went to her huge fortune. There was only one major purchaser of the Winchester rifle and it was designed for that purchaser, the US Department of War, which it was rightly called and still should be called. They changed it in World War II to Department of Defense. <laughs> the chief reason for the War Department's purchases, the rifle, in great quantities, was one purpose, to kill Indians. The rifle was a technological innovation designed especially for the U.S. Army's campaigns against the Plains Indians following the Civil War. Uh, it's sort of like the M16 rifle in Vietnam, and even, even now the M16, is, that was the Winchester at that time, up until World War II. The Winchester house, that they call a mystery house, amazes all who tour it. There are five floors, more or less, since they are staggered, it's hard to tell. Each room in itself appears normal, more or less, that is decorated in the late 19th century Victorian mode, you know, with velvet couches and very uncomfortable little couches and chairs and wallpaper and, you know, very a lot of things. But there's more than meets the eye in getting from, from parlors to bedrooms to kitchen to closets and from floor to floor. Numerous stairways dead end, and secret trap doors hide the actual stairways. Closet doors open to walls, and pieces of furniture really doors to closets. Huge bookcases serve as entrances to adjoining rooms. Part of the house was unfinished. When the widow died, she kept building on it as she had construction workers building every day from when she started it till the day she died from dawn to dusk, seven days a week, adding rooms and traps until her death. Visitors tracking through the widow's home are astounded and perhaps saddened, although there's a lot of joking to crazy old lady, of course by the evidence all around them of the fears and anguish of an obviously mentally disturbed person. Yet there is another possibility, a sense of the scaffolding that supports U.S. society, a kind of hologram in the minds of each and every person on the continent. Mrs. Winchester might have been more aware of the truth than most people, and therefore fearful of its consequences as everyone should be. Regardless, in continuing to find or invent enemies across the globe, expand what is already the largest military force in the world, and add to an elaborate global network of 1,000 military bases, all in the name of national or global security, does not the United States today resemble Mrs. Winchester constantly trying to foil her ghosts? The guilt harbored by most is buried and expressed in other ways, including gun violence on a larger scale. Regeneration through violence, as Richard Slotkin puts it.
2: Thank you. You were just listening to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, On Genocide and Settler Colonialism. She spoke at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, a distinguished scholar, has been active in the international indigenous movement for many years. She's the author of many books, including An Indigenous People's History of the United States, winner of the American Book Award. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Ralph Nader, Angela Davis, Chris Hedges, Vandana Shiva, and Tariq Ali. We also have a series of programs featuring Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, AlternativeRadio.org. again our website where we are podcasting AlternativeRadio.org. to place a credit card order for copies of today's program roxanne dunbar ortiz on genocide and settler colonialism and for her book an indigenous people's history of the united states just call us one 800 that's one 800 Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Special thanks to Professor Samir Gundesha and Simon Fraser University. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Gustav Mahler's Adagietto from his Symphony No. 5 performed by the Berlin Philharmonic.
0: ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Good Game Hunter the show, where we talk about good games and hunting for a great time. Okay guys, let's do some serious talk here, okay? As a proud owner of way over 60 board games, I'm constantly struggling when it comes to board games and traveling. Yes, I have a problem guys, okay? I want to bring all of them. But who wants to carry around a separate bag just for board games while you're already carrying a duffel bag? for a small case full of clothes for a week. So here are the small tips for anyone who wants to bring their board games while traveling. Tip number one, try to cut down on the packaging. You would be surprised how many games will cut down in size and in weight if you only bring necessary pieces without the box or any plastic pieces inside. Tip number two, choose games that are small in size. Obviously, I mean, yeah, it's kind of pretty obvious, but (laughs) there are plenty of games such as Bananagrams, Jungle Speed, Uno that are extremely small yet can accommodate a large group of people and still be fun and interesting. Tip number three. Find games that have the same pieces, like a 52 card deck. Did you know that one deck of cards can be used in way over 20 different card games? All it takes is to do some research. And tip number four. Consider renting board games at a local board game cafe. I know you're gonna spend some money, but let's be honest with each other. If you're traveling to a large city, like Calgary, for example, there's a high chance there's a local card shop or a board game cafe that will provide this kind of service. So you don't have to bring anything with you and you can just visit them for a good board game night and drinks. Such places exist in Calgary as well, such as the Hexagon Board Game Cafe, where you can get a 10% off coffee menu if you present your CGSW Friends card. So make sure to check them out the next time your friends are going to come over to Calgary. And there you go. You don't have to struggle to have a good time with your friends, okay? Thank you for tuning in to CGSW on 90.9 FM and game
2: on! Well just go to the website alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org. Uh we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. You've been listening to CJSW's airing of Alternative Radio. For a full list of episodes, head to the podcast